Good morning. Happy Father's Day. We will have a treat for you dads at the end of the service. Pastor Jeff, I think, will say more about that. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would, in your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's been a good Sunday already. And now we get to look at the Word together. Praise the Lord. Abba, Father, what a sweet and tender relationship, right? That God wants to have with us. We all have fathers. Some of us, though, may not have the best relationship. Some of us, though, admire and look up to our father and maybe even our father's father. And that, that's always a privilege, always a joy, really a blessing of the Lord. I was able to look at a photograph today of four generations of Cleaver men when I became a father, and that's fun. And maybe you've done some of that in your own family with even more generations. But what does it mean to, uh, to be a father? Well, you have to have children, right? Or those that you call your children. But really, to be a, a good father, it's, it's to be with them, right? And if you're a mom, you've heard this question, when's daddy coming home? When's daddy coming home, right? Why? Because the child wants to be with their daddy. And they miss their daddy because he's gone. He works long hours, maybe. He's caring for the family. He's doing what, you know, God's called him to do. But the question can often come, where's daddy? When's daddy coming home? And if you wait long enough, men, your wife will be asking that question too, not just your children, right? When's daddy coming home? Why isn't he here yet? And, and the reason we ask that is because we want to be with Daddy, right? We want to be with him and have that relationship with him. When is Daddy getting home? Sometimes that's, uh, you could illustrate that in many different ways, whether it's a Daddy coming home from work, a Father coming home from work. I use the term Daddy because that's kind of like that term Abba, Father. But as, that, as it relates to our message today, it ties right in with that because we often ask that question, when is Jesus coming again? When is he coming? I, I want to be with him. And yet, he seems to be taking a while to get here, right? And as we looked at last week, in the first part of chapter 3 of Second Peter, we saw that there were scoffers that scoffed at his coming. <sighs> He's not coming back. Today, though, we're going to see that we need to be waiting patiently for his coming. Just like a child waits for daddy. Or maybe you've seen those videos. There's a mom and her kids. Maybe a daughter, two daughters, and a son. And it's at a big sports arena, say a football game. And it's packed out. People everywhere. And here mom and her kids are in the center field. And why are they there? Well, it's during halftime. And they're being honored because dad is away from home. And why is dad away from home? It's because he's overseas working for Uncle Sam, right? in Afghanistan or wherever it may be, and they want to honor this family that has sacrificed, that has given up time that they could be spending with their dad, with their husband, and he's serving overseas. And so they, they, you know, they put him up on the jumbotron, and they do this tribute, and maybe they'll even have a video of you know, the dad went over, from overseas where he can, he can greet the family and say hello, and, and tears are streaming because there's dad, but I can't be with him, and I want to be with him. And yet he's so far away, right? 
And then how do those videos often end? The golf cart comes onto the field, or dad takes off the mascot head, and there he is. There's dad. He, he surprised his whole family. There's tears of joy. There's hugs and there's kisses because daddy is home. And even though the wait has been long and the wait has been hard and there's been sacrifices made, daddy's finally home. And so it makes all those other things just melt away and it makes it all worth it. In our passage today, we're just going to look at three verses, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And our passage today shows us that people are scoffing, but we need to be waiting patiently because there's a reason that Christ hasn't returned yet. And there gives three reasons, one in each of these verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, that we can rest in even though Christ has not returned. So let's, if you would, read with me together. Second Peter, chapter 3, we'll read verses 8 through 10, starting now. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So waiting patiently for his coming. Even those people scoff, here we're seeing waiting. We need to be waiting patiently for his coming. What is that question? When is daddy coming home? It's a question of time, right? Time. What time is he coming? When is he finally going to get here? He's been gone so long. I want to know the time. And when it comes to Christ's return, what did Christ himself say about it? No man knoweth the time. No man knoweth the time. Now that's not always an appropriate answer to give your wife, husbands, just so you know. You at least give it an approximate time, right? But when it comes to Christ's return, we look at him and, and, and verse 8 shows us that his coming is actually on time. It's exactly on time, even though it feels like, wait a minute, he's delaying. Look at verse 8. Because Peter wants us to get something very important. He starts out by saying, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. And what is he saying? He's saying, beloved, those of you that are part of the family of God, those of you that are loved by God, those of you that are united with God and united in Christ with one another, beloved, us together, that family relationship, he's saying, I want us as a family, as a church family, as a church body, to not be what? Ignorant. Now notice, if you would, back in first verse 3, um, or verse 5, actually, that there were the false teachers that were willingly ignorant. And they were wi ignorant willingly that God was creator, we looked at, and that he is coming again. So he says, those that reject Christ are willingly ignorant of this, but those of you that are beloved, that are in the family of God, I want you to be fully assured of this. And he says, don't be ignorant. He's saying, don't escape this reality. Don't put it out of your mind. In other words, meditate on it and bring it to remembrance. Don't be ignorant. And he says of this one thing, this first, this one, this important thing. Remember how he started off this section in verse 3 
where he says, knowing this first, that there'll be scoffers, he says, now that we got that out of the way, this is the most important thing to remember. And what is that? Remember this thing. He goes on to say in verse 8, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. How long is a thousand years? I'd say it's a pretty long time, right? What year are we in right now? We're in 2021, and we measure, you know, from Christ coming to this earth until now. And so it's been over 2,000 years since Christ left this earth. 2,000 years. What has happened in the last 2,000 years? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, right? In fact, so much has happened that we don't even know all about it, right? And what do they say about history? It's, it's written by the people that won. And so just think of all the other people that didn't win, and they had their own stories to tell and cultures and all of that. And so, so much has happened in the last 1,000 years. So much has happened in the last 40 years, wouldn't you say? I mean, technology, it's amazing. Or this, the time between, I believe, the Wright brothers' first flight and man walking on the moon was something like 66 years. That's all it took. Of course, there was a lot of industrialization before that. So we even look at a time frame like 60 years and say, wow, that's a long time. 100 years, yeah, that's a long time. That's, that's longer than most men are, or people are alive. But you go all the way to 1,000 years, you're talking about world history, the, the, things that have, the empires that have risen and fallen. 2,000 years, we're talking about multiple empires and an exploration of the globe and all of those things. And yet, what does Peter say? that God views it as. A thousand years are as, it's just as. A day is like a thousand years and vice versa. Now notice, it's very important, he doesn't say a day is a thousand years. He's using a comparison, but not a straight equal sign. Because some people will take this and, and use it um, to things that we've already looked at in the previous section and denying a six-day literal creation as Genesis reveals and say, you know, in one day, it could be a thousand years. But even if you take that interpretation, that's not what anyone says. They don't say it was 6,000 years to create the world. They would up that number by a multiple of 10 or 100 at least. And so he's not talking about that. Where else is this word used? Well, the only other place the word thousand is used in our New Testament is guess where? It's Second Peter, and then place you would know well, Revelation. In Revelation, it's used over and over again. And if you look at Revelation 20... It talks of, really, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that he is coming to bring about. And in Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John is having this vision of the future, and he writes down, Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon and that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousands years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little and I saw thrones and they that sat up them, and the judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God which had not worshipped the beast neither his image neither had received the mark upon their foreheads or their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ, how long? A thousand years. 
but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And what is this talking about? It's talking about the millennial reign of Christ. When he returns, like we're talking about in Second Peter, his coming again, that he's going to set up his kingdom and actually reign for a thousand years. So if Christ is going to be worldwide ruler for 1,000 years, and we only know about, what, 6,000 years of human history, and Christ is a thousand of that, in comparison, how long is a thousand years? It's really only like one-sixth, one-eighth. It's not, not super long. What else, though, is Peter getting at here in verse 8 of Second Peter 3? Because when Peter says one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, what is he referring to? He's referring to how our God is eternal. That God is not bound by time. In other words, he, he can view it and, and see all of it, and the passing of time does not cause him to grow angst or say what's going to happen next or, I, or I, I need to be doing something because he's not bound by time. And the scriptures reiterate this truth over and over and over again. Just think of how the Bible starts. It assumes the existence and eternality of God. In the beginning, that's the first measurement of time that we have, right? God, he already existed, created the heavens and the earth. So all it took was God existing forever, which we can't comprehend, and then, boom, time starts, he creates. And that's our relation to time. But remember, God has always existed, and so he can live outside of even the constraints of time. And for me, that's really hard to wrap my mind around, right? How do you have not time? In fact, even when we speak of forever, what, are we, what do we think of in our minds? If you think of infinity or forever, we, th we still think of a starting point, right? And it just continues on and on and on and on. We still have a starting point. And we still kind of process in our minds time. It just, time keeps passing. But for God, it's not like that at all. He has always existed. He didn't need time to exist. He didn't need material to exist. He has always been. And then I want you to turn to Psalm 40 because Peter is actually quoting, uh, sorry, Psalm 90, Psalm 90. Because Peter's actually quoting Psalm 90 here in 2 Peter to show the character and the eternality of our God and who he is. That he's not constrained by time. Look at Psalm 90, Psalm 90, the first verse. And it's contrasting finite man with our infinite God. It says, Lord... Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. God, you've always existed, and every generation has had an opportunity to look to you. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even thou hast formed the earth and the world, what was that referring to? Creation. Notice the last part of verse 2. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Everlasting, everlasting, God always has been. Now, can we understand that? Kind of. Can we comprehend that? No. But let me tell you something. If you can comprehend your God, 
you should find a new God. Does that make sense? Because if, if you can comprehend him, he has been one of your own making, your own choosing, one that you have fit into a box, as we often say, and yet the true, the one and only true God is not someone we can just fit into a box. The psalmist goes on to say, verse 3, Thou turnest man to destruction, and saith, Return, ye children of men. God has ultimate power, ultimate eternality. And then verse 4 is what Peter quotes, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And as a watch in the night, it's just like a day and a night that has passed. Thou carriest them away as a flood, they are as asleep, in the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Thou hast set thy iniquities, our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale is told. The days of our years, notice how he's contrasting man versus God. The days of our years are threescore and ten. By reason of strength, they may be fourscore years, so seventy, eighty. Even their strength and labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So what is man like? It's like your lawn mowing clippings, right? You have grass, it grows, you spend all that energy and effort to make it look nice and green. And then you cut it and you don't care about those clippings anymore at all, right? All you're concerned about is whatever's left, that it stays green for as long as possible. But what is grass? We don't think much of grass, and it doesn't last very long, and it's cut down easily. That's man. And in comparison to God, who is eternal and above all, it's something we cannot even comprehend. Many times throughout Scripture, God has revealed himself as this eternal creator. And so when it comes to his, his, his coming again, we can say, well, he's delaying or he's taking a long time. But in his mind, is it really that long? He knows all of time and he's above and over all time. And he is the one that has always been. Remember what God said to Moses, burning bush. I am that I am. Tell them that's who sent you. The one who's always existed. Or Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that God is the eternal creator, says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. Creation, what God has made, screams of his eternal existence and who he is. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools or ignorant, like Peter says, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They made idols. So God is outside of time, and he is eternal. So his coming is going to be exactly on time. The scriptures also tie this character or this attribute of God directly to Jesus Christ. So you can't just look at Christ and say, oh, he's just a man or just another person. Because if you look at passages like John chapter 1, what does it start out with? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is directly referring to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ was right there from creation, and that means eternity past then. 
The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then Christ himself claimed this eternality. Look at John chapter 8, because it's important to see that our eternal God, we see him in the person of Christ, and Christ is the eternal God as well. John chapter 8, verse 54, so near the end of the passage, end of the chapter. John 8, 54, Jesus is answering the Jews, and he says, If I honor myself, John 8, 54, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Jesus is saying, I know the father, and Abraham prophesied of me. Verse 57, then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and thou hast seen Abraham? You're not even 50. How could you say you've seen Abraham? He died so long ago, and what is Jesus' response? This is powerful. He says, verily, verily, for certain, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Before he was, I am. And and what is he saying there? He's not just making something up. He's using the very name of God that was revealed to Moses, I am. And he's saying, I existed even before Abraham was. And the Jews took it that way. And we know they took it that way because the very next verse says they took up stones to cast at him and saying, you're being blasphemous, calling yourself and equating yourself with God. So Jesus himself equated himself with God, with the eternal God. And so his timetable is going to be perfect. It's going to be right on time, right on his time. So when we come back to Second Peter, he says, a thousand years is as one day. So how many days have passed since Christ left? Just a couple days, right? If you want to look at it that way. So how long is two days? How long is two days? Well, it really depends, right? It really depends on what two days away is. If two days away is VBS and you've been waiting for a month for this and you're a very young child, two days can seem like a very, very long time, right? Or two days before getting married, depending on how the wedding is and the preparations, two days can be very long. Sometimes it can be very short though, right? Because you're looking forward and expecting. But if someone leaves, even on a week-long trip, we we don't think, oh, they're going to be gone forever. They're never coming back. And that's the point and the idea here. Just because Christ has left and people scoff doesn't mean he's not on his perfect timetable and that he's coming again. But it comes to also this question. Do you ever get tired of waiting? Do you get tired of waiting? Has your patience ever run out? In other words, sometimes we're like, God, why don't you just come back and just make everything right? You know, let's just get the show on the road and, and get the things set in order. And and that's often how we think, why hasn't daddy come back? And moms are like that sometimes too. It's been a hard day with the kids. And she said multiple times already, wait till your daddy gets home, right? (laughs) And you know what that means. It means that the discipline needs to be stepped up a notch. And mommy cannot wait for daddy to get home. Now the kids, on the other hand, they're on the wrong side of dad's wrath, right? And so they are fearing maybe that moment, as we'll see some people do (laughs) in, in, in a moment here too. 
But the admonition is here is don't get tired of waiting. It's a wait patiently because he is coming exactly on time. Christ's return is not going to be a day late. It's not going to be a day early. It's going to be right on God's timetable. And his coming could be at any time. It's imminent. If God is outside of time, he knows exactly when it's going to happen. And he can return at any moment. And then when it comes to our infinite God, remember that finite people cannot hold the infinite God to their timetable. In other words, we're just finite people. We can't look at God and say, you have to do it on my timetable. God is outside of time, and he will do everything appropriately and in his time. So his coming is on time. And then secondly, in verse 9, his coming, why hasn't he come yet? His coming is only delayed because of his long-suffering. His coming is only delayed because of his long-suffering. Look at verse 9, the beginning there. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What does it mean to be slack? It has the idea of delaying or loitering or just waiting around when it comes to his promise. So has God promised things in the Bible? Absolutely. Has God fulfilled his promise over and over again? Has God fulfilled all of his promises? Not yet. But just because he hasn't fulfilled them yet doesn't mean he won't fulfill them, right? I mean, it's like if you, if you promise your child, I'm going to get you a birthday gift. But you delay and you wait, and then you say, well, wait, it's for the next year, right? You say, wait a minute, that's, that's men counting slackness. It's the idea in that next phrase, as some men count slackness, of tardiness, or when someone comes to you and says, I'll do that, I promise, later, right? I'm going to do that, whatever you ask me to do, I promise I will do that, but I'm going to do it later. And what do you, you look at a person like that, and what, what is your response? It's a double positive that means a negative. It's, yeah, right, you know. There's no way you're going to actually do that. If, if you're going to do that in your promise, you do it now. And that's how we often think of promises. But remember, that's not how God operates. He can keep his promise and say, I'm coming again, and it's not, has to be on our timetable. So why does he wait then? Why doesn't he come back and make things right now? Well, Peter goes on to say, it's because he is long-suffering toward uswards. And this is so sweet. Because it shows throughout this passage God's character on full display. He's eternal, so it's on his timetable. He's delaying, but only because he is long-suffering. What does it mean to be long-suffering? Or long-suffering, as one of my professors would say. It has the idea to bear with that you're under that same burden and you're suffering through something and it's not going to be a short thing. Some of you know that exact experience, either with your physical body or maybe it's a strained relationship and there has been long suffering. There are things that you have patiently had to endure, right? It also has the idea of long-tempered. Does anyone ever get under your nerves? Are you a patient person? I always say, I, I, I was a really patient person until I had kids. 
And what I mean by that is I, I, I didn't realize I really wasn't a patient person and the kids just brought it out, right? Because it can be so easy to get frustrated. Why aren't you doing exactly what I told you to do like five times in the last five minutes, right? And it's very easy in our own human nature to, get, to be so short-tempered, we would call it, the opposite, or so angry. And yet here it's saying God is long-suffering. He is patient. I love the Old Testament uh, parallel to this same word. The Old Testament parallel is two words, and it simply means slow or long-nostrilled. Long-nostrilled. It has a picture of a horse. Horse has a longer snout, right, or nose, whatever you want to call it. And the idea is with nostril, why would it say nostril? Well, nostril is the same word for anger in the Old Testament. And why is that? Because when people get mad, something happens with their nostrils, right? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. When someone gets heated and they're ready to argue, there's usually spit, right? But their, their face is enraged. But what, what's coming out, out of their nostril? It's coming hot air, right? And that's the idea. If you're long-nostriled, it doesn't mean you have a big nose. It means that that while you would be angry and you could be angry and that the hot air is right there, your nose is so long, by the time it gets to the end of your nose, it's cooled down. And it's not that blast of hot air in your face that's someone angry at you. And so God is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. Does God have reason to be angry with people? Does God have reason to be angry at sin? Does God have reason to be angry at this world? Does God have reason to be angry at me? And yet, so beautiful, he is long-suffering. And to who? Toward usward. He's saying to you as believers, God has been so merciful and gracious. And God has shown that long-suffering and that patience with you. Did you get saved the very first time you heard the gospel? Maybe some of you did, but most of us did not. It took multiple times for us to hear, to understand, for God to work, for us to believe the gospel, and for God to save us. And so why is God, has he not returned? Well, it goes on to say, because he's not willing that any should perish. He's been long-suffering to you, to me as believers. What about all the other ones that have not professed Christ? Or just think of it this way too. How many people have gotten saved in the last 2,000 years? How many people? I don't know, but it's thousands, tens of thousands, right? Millions even. And God has not returned because he's not willing or not desiring that any should perish. This is God's heart. This is his desire. He doesn't want to see his creation, his people, mankind, be utterly destroyed. Do we deserve utter destruction? Yeah. The Bible is very clear about that. Romans, we looked at that briefly already, but all have sinned. We've all come short of God's glory. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. We've all turned to our own way. Even the things that we think are righteous are but as filthy rags. And yet Christ, God, 
is not desiring that utter ruin that is, is righteously deserved by all of us. So he's not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That they turn from their own way and they turn to the only way, and that is Christ. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, speaking of God, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. God is desirous of that. And one of the practical ways that we're trying to put feet on the ground and do that is our VBS this week. We want to see people, not just children, but their parents and families, we want to see them saved. We want to tell them the good news that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he has come and died on the cross in our place so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And we want to declare that message loudly and boldly and compassionately because Jesus saves and because he is coming again. Turn it back to Romans, if you would. Romans chapter 2. Remember, Romans 1, 2, and 3 is really setting up the argument that all are condemned and guilty before God. That all deserve God's righteous judgment because of our sin. And right in the middle of this section, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, show God's patience in delaying his judgment again towards men. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For when thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doth the same things. Have you ever told someone not to do something, yet you are doing that exact same thing? And that's the idea here. You can tell other people not to do it, but we're all guilty when it comes before God. Verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth, against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that when thou judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Are you going to get away with it? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impudent heart treasured up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but, are, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, God will judge those, it goes on to say. So what is it saying? God in his goodness, it's part of his good character that he forbears, that he long suffers, and it's part of his goodness that then leads people to repentance, to faith and trust in Jesus, to turning to him. And verses 7 and 8 show the two type of people that there are. There's either those that are patiently waiting and seeking for his return and are going to be rewarded with great and glorious things and eternal things, or those are those that are unrighteous and don't care about him. So God is patient to us, and so Paul here is even saying, and Peter as well, be patient in his return because he is being gracious and good to those that have not yet come to the knowledge of him. So we've seen that his coming, where you need to patiently wait for it, because his coming is on time. 
We've seen that his coming is only delayed because of his long suffering. And then finally, his coming will be unexpected. Look back at verse 10 in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. His coming will be unexpected. And it's going to be unexpected in two ways. In its timing and in, and in its destruction. So his coming is unexpected in both timing and destruction. Look at the timing, first part of verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And what is he talking about here? This phrase, the day of the Lord, is used over and over and over in not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And what he's teaching us is the day of the Lord is the the coming judgment of God. And we see even in the Old Testament prophets, remember we looked at Amos last week, in the evening service, and it talked about the day of the Lord. And what was the day of the Lord? It was the time when the Lord was going to bring judgment upon people because of their sin and rebellion. And when the New Testament, when we see this, and, and compare it even with Old Testament, we see that the day of the Lord is really talking about the time right after the rapture, so the start of the tribulation, going all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ, and his ultimate victory at the end of making everything right at that thousand years. So it's not one day, but it's really a thousand years plus the seven-year tribulation and how much the wars that take place in between there are, which in my mind probably won't take that long if Christ is on your side. So it's around that time frame that we're told in the scriptures that the day of the Lord is. And it starts, I believe, right after the rapture. And that's why I believe in a pre-tribulation and a premillennial reign of Christ. So pre-tribulation, remember Christ doesn't touch down on earth then, but we go up to him because this day of the Lord is directly judgment given to unbelievers. And so the tribulation is God's judgment being poured out because of people that are unbelievers. So that's the day of the Lord. So that time, when is it going to come? Well, notice that it is a certainty that it will come because the day of the Lord will come. And I love that promise. It will come. Christ is coming again. There's a sure promise yet again of Christ's return. He's going to come. He's going to make things right. He's going to bring the righteous to himself, and he's going to judge the wicked in righteousness. It's a certainty, and it's also imminent. That means it could happen at any time. It's on God's timetable. And the idea there is he's going to come indeed. Daddy's coming home is the idea, and mommy can say that for certainty to the young child. Daddy's coming home, and it's a good thing if you're on the right side, right? Otherwise, it's a bad thing if you deserve the judgment. So it's unexpected in its timing. Notice the the last part of that phrase. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What does it mean to be a thief in the night? Well, how do thieves work? Well, if you want to be a bad thief, this is what you do, right? You go to thievesareus.com and you sign up on the forum. And they give you a schedule of everything. It gives you a nice Google map layout of all the houses and it gives you the notes of who, who lives there and their times. And it gives you all the valuables that they own. Don't worry, you've already entered that because you use Facebook and it's tracking you. And uh, I, I don't know if I'm kidding or not, unfortunately. Uh, and then the thieves can go on there and they sign up for a time slot. They say, oh, you're going to be home during this time. I'm going to sign up for that time slot right then. You know, 10 a.m., I know you'll be home. I'm going to sign up for that time slot. And then thankfully, thievesrs.com sends you a notification on your phone saying, there's a thief coming by at 10 a.m. Would you be kind and just leave that front door unlocked? And if you go ahead and unplug the TV and take the security straps off 
and leave the key in your vehicle, all those things, that'd be great. Is that how a thief works? No. We look at that and we say, that's ridiculous. That's never how they do it. What do they do? They scope out the area. They make sure no one's there. And then they hit at the most opportune moment when nobody expects it, right? So nobody is expecting a thief to come. And yet they come in the night. I, I'm reminded, I, husbands, I'm sure you've gotten woken up by your wife saying, there's a loud noise, right? You need to go check it out. And be honest, I have to be woken up. I sleep like the dead, like a rock. And so my wife is always the one going to hear it. And she'll say, can you go check that out? And I'll just be like, honey, I'm sure he, his intentions were not to disturb us. I'm sure he'd be embarrassed <laughs> if, if he knew that he had awoken us. So let's just go back to sleep and I'm sure he'll be, no, I would get in big trouble if I did any of that. Right, because you don't want a thief in your house because it's bringing destruction. And it's the same idea. It's, it's totally unexpected, doesn't make an appointment, and Christ is going to return and start up this whole day of the Lord. So as we sung, what if it were today? What if it were today? That's a glorious thought if you know Christ as your Savior. But it's a horrible thought if you don't know him. Because look at how verse 10 ends. It says, after this unexpected timing, there's unexpected destruction. That all of heaven and earth is going to pass away. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This is talking about all the makeup of the universe, the stars, the, the, the skies, that type of heaven that we would say. That the heavens are going to pass away, and the elements, that's really the part of the universe, I believe even what holds even the atomic structure together, I believe Christ is holding that together in his hand, but it's saying all of that is going to melt with a fervent heat. The idea there is to let loose. It, it gives me the imagery of even atomic explosion. What happens there? Neutrons are let loose on each other, right? And things just rapidly and quickly fall apart. And there's, there's nothing left on the canvas. It's all going to be destroyed. And he says, the, L, or the, the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. And what is he talking about? He's talking about, we've already talked, that there was a worldwide judgment in the, in the flood. Remember, God judged the whole world in a flood, but then he gave the beautiful sign of a rainbow and said, I'm never going to judge the world with a flood again. But he didn't say, I'm never going to judge the world with fire. Have any of you been near a large fire, a roaring fire, or maybe even a forest fire? Several years back, I was working at Grandview Camp in Arizona, and they had one of the biggest forest fires that year. Over 600,000 600, acres were burned in the, I think, Bear Wallow Creek fire. And it was during staff training that we're up there in the mountains. We're having camp staff training, getting ready for all these campers to arrive. Of course, we're in wooden cabins, in a wooden forest, in a dry area. And the, I think it was the first or second day of staff training, we were alerted that, hey, there's some smoke over there. Someone had left a fire burning, but you don't have to worry about it. There's, there's no worry at all. They'll probably get the fire contained. and It'll be under control. By Thursday of that week, we were evacuating. And why were we evacuating? Because the fire had grown, and it was bigger and bigger, and it was headed right for our rental camp property that we were at. So here I am, 4 p.m., on a Thursday afternoon, and we're frantically trying to load up some of the camp staff worldly goods because they lived on site there. So we're putting their piano and their dresser, just throw it on the trailer, and we got to get down the mountain. 
And as we're doing this, the clouds and the sky is getting darker and darker and darker. We see the firemen arrive. They graciously did a few fire breaks on their ground around like our propane tanks and whatnot. And then the firemen said this, I want you to stop and I want you to listen. And what did we hear? It sounded like a jet engine and it was the roar of a forest fire consuming everything in its path. And then they said this, we're leaving, you should too. And so just want to tell you that if the fireman says we're getting out of here, that's a very good indication that you should leave. And, and by that time, the sun was completely blocked out. It was only, it was only early after, mid-afternoon and you couldn't see a thing. You had to use a flashlight just to walk around because this roaring, consuming fire was going to destroy everything. And that's just what we think as as small, finite humans, this huge thing. And yet, that's just one little part of the earth. And God says, judgment day is coming where the entire earth is going to experience global warming on a scale that you've never seen. So I had to finish that story, otherwise you're going to wonder that's happened. The fire stopped right before the rental property. It continued to burn another 40 miles towards our brand new property. It split in half, went around our property, didn't burn any of the brand new buildings. Embers came over, dropped on one of our old buildings, burned it to the ground. We got insurance money. We were able to build a lodge there where we wanted to anyways. So God in his providence, it's amazing, the whole story, worked everything out. But what I'm saying is fire consumes. Fire scorches. And then it ends with this, the earth, verse 10, also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So it's not just the heavenly bodies, but the earth itself, this world, will be destroyed and made anew. And then he also says the works that are therein. I think that's very important because what is man so concerned about right now? What I can build, <laughs> especially in our valley, right? All these houses going up. What I can create with my own hands. I have news for you. We have a fire suppression system in this building and it works to our knowledge. We got it tested recently. I think the fire department only came out once because of a sensor <laughs> that we forgot to turn back off. And, and we have this fire suppression system, but I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, this, this building is not going to last forever. Even though we built it well and we have a fire suppression system, it's either going to fall over or burn to the ground or be pushed over one day. And that's what's going to happen with all of our, our works with our hands, the things that we do. So what's the admonition then? If his coming is, is unexpected, both in its time and in its destruction, it means every moment that we live should be lived with eternal values in mind because we don't want something that's just going to be destroyed and we don't know when he comes back. So we see that even though we don't know when Christ is returning, we know that he will return and it motivates us right now, this very day, this very week, to live in a way that is pleasing to him. So wait. Wait patiently for his coming. Live Live patiently for his coming because his coming is on time. God's right on schedule. Don't worry. His coming is only being delayed because of his own long suffering, his own goodness. His coming, though, it will be unexpected. So you need to be ready. So God is on time. He's eternal. God keeps his word and he is patient. God will arrive and make all things right. He's coming again. Amen? Praise the Lord. But if you don't know him, the admonition then is, know Christ as your Savior. 
because he is the one, the only one who can take that judgment, that punishment that we all deserve because of our sin. So turn to Christ, walk with Christ, wait patiently for Christ.